Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent, and as you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some novels for older readers, uh, and my young adult novel, Altogether Now, a Zombie Story. For more information about all of that, and more importantly, for interviews with thousands of literary agents, editors, authors, book people, the world's best people, head to middlegradeninja.com. And we have got to get started. I couldn't be more thrilled. Today, we're chatting with Stephen Frazier of the uh, Jennifer DiChiara uh, Literary Agency. Did I get it right after practicing right before? Perfect. Yes. Beautiful. I won't say it again the whole episode. (laughs) Why run a good record? So Stephen, how are you this morning? Great. So I'm really happy to be here. You know, uh, agents are not supposed to choose favorites. But I have to say that middle grade is kind of my sweet spot. Um, I mean, I've sold lots of picture books, YA novels, nonfiction, but I have to say that middle grade is kind of where I do the best. One of my very first clients won the Newbery Honor with her debut novel. Um, had a great book come out last year called The Lost Language by Claudia Mills, and which is a book that I love. So middle grade really has a special place in my heart. You have come to the right place. All the world's best middle grade authors are listening to us and and probably they're already sending their queries. <laughs> well, it's interesting that, I mean, I think that having, you know, I was an, aid, an editor for 25 years before becoming an agent, which I've done now for 17 going on 18 years. Um, middle grade are really the strongest readers. They're the most adventurous the most loyal readers. Um, and when you think about it, some of your, our favorite children's books ever are all middle grade novels. So it's really, it's, a, it's an important place in publishing um, because those are your, you know, the strongest readers. You can do some very adventurous things. Middle grade kids are, are fully adult. I mean, they don't have the extra component that teens do of, you know, coming into their sexuality and the deep emotional life. But in every other way, middle grade kids are full adults, so they can handle any kind of topic. So it's an interesting area. Uh, you don't have to convince me. You're, you're preaching to the choir. I, uh, <laughs> I love middle grade readers. One of the things I love about them or about middle grade books uh, is that you can capture someone's imagination as a child. And then there may yet come a day where they're going to read it to another child and you get a second go round. You, you reinforce the thing you already planted in childhood, fingers crossed. <laughs> That's actually true. And, you know, it's interesting that um, these days it's hard to keep books in print. Well, particularly for adults, but for children's book also. But I do think middle grade is kind of like a canon of literature for middle grade kids that have been, that will stay in print forever. I mean, think of Johnny Chemain or a single shard um, Secret Garden, some of the, uh, Charlotte's Web, some of these great books, classics, really, they're always going to be around. So in a sense, the challenge for a middle grade writer is to contribute to this canon that, of literature that already exists. So you want to create something totally new, something fresh, but something that's going to be around forever. So there's kind of a universal quality, a timeless quality. I mean, there's room for stuff that's just fun as well. I don't mean everything has to be um, serious and heavy-handed, but there's a kind of timeless quality to great children's literature. And um, so a middle-grade writer, you're adding to that canon of literature, as I said. So it's, it's, a, it's an important responsibility writing for middle-grade readers. 
You mentioned the Secret Garden. I had read that you reread that book every year. Is that right? I do. Uh, it's one of my favorite books. I mean, I've read um, all of her books. You know, Frances Hudson Burnett was kind of a formulaic writer. I mean, she wasn't one of our great writers. She was, in her time, she was best known as an adult of commercial fiction, ladies' fiction, as it were. But I think when she wrote um, Secret Garden, she hit on a metaphor of the garden, which is a universal theme. But she did it in such a fresh, original way that the book has lived on and on and on. Um, I mean, it's really about creativity, isn't it? It's about coming to life, starting to care about other people, um, finding yourself, loving the world. It's, I mean, it's such a beautiful theme that, yes, I do, I admit, I read it once every year. <laughs> what, uh, what do you take away from that experience after having read it um... God knows how many times at this point. Well, you know, one of the dangers of being a former editor is I'm very, I scrutinize everything really carefully. I mean, I remember in grad school, we read The Wizard of Oz, which I adored, but I think I adored the movie more than the book. When I read the book in grad school, I thought, oh my God, this is not a very good book. The writing is very <laughs> thin. Al Frank Baum was, he was an original myth maker. So he really made a contribution to, to American literature for children, but he was not a great writer. The writing is quite thin. The movie fleshed it out and brought color and imagination and then life to it. The Secret Garden, um, you know, I, 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 I noticed things in it and it, it, it is, actually is a good book. And, but I noticed details, like I never noticed until reading it a few months ago when Mary Lennox is in India when her parents are still alive. She starts planting things in the garden. She already has an affinity for natural life. And I didn't remember that. So when she get, when her parents die in the, um, um, the, um, I don't, the whatever pestilence that kills everyone off, um, and, and then she's shipped to her uncle Craven in, in outside of uh, London in England. Um, she, you know, is drawn to the gardens and having her own garden. Might I have a bit of earth, she asks, but it's already planted in the reader's minds that she actually already loves gardens and plants. I think that's genius. And I never noticed that before. I don't know if you remember that, but it's quite deftly done by Frances Hodgson Burnett. The idea of connecting to the natural world as a child um, is quite beautiful. No, I've uh, I've read it, but not not reread every year. Uh, although <laughs> you're inspiring me, I need to pick it up again. It's been a while. Well, I mean, any any great book you can reread, and you do notice more things. Um, can I tell you about some middle grade books that I've read recently that I liked? I insist. I would love to hear about them. Okay. Well, you know, we lost Gary Paulson this year, the great writer. Um, interestingly, I reviewed, when I was in grad school, I did some book reviewing and I reviewed in the Christian Science Monitor, his novel called Hatchet, which of course was a Newbery Honor book, one of three Newbery Honor books he wrote. Um, this uh, last year, two books of his were published. It turns out posthumously. One of them is called Gone to the Woods, which is his memoir written as a middle grade novel. And it's really, really special, rather brutal because he had a rather difficult um, childhood. His parents were both alcoholics. They were not attentive. He was sent to live with, a, with an aunt up in the wilds of Minnesota. 
um, which is where he kind of became Barry, Gary Paulson, the, the, the um, woodsman that we love, the, the writer who's inspired by nature. Um, and then he wrote, which I think is his best book ever, North Wind, which came out several months later, both published by Forrest Strauss. North Wind is really um, kind of like Hatchet, a boy in the wilderness, but I think it takes place in Norway. It doesn't come out and say it, but it's quite, it's a stunningly beautiful book. So those are two middle grade novels that I loved recently. Um, two of my clients have middle grade novels coming out this year. This summer, S.A. Rodriguez, who's a Latina writer, has her debut novel called Treasure Tracks about a boy in Key West who hunts for treasure with his grandfather. And it's, so it's an adventure story, but it's really about family. It's about this boy, Finn, and his abuelo, his grandfather, and the father. And the father and the grandfather are estranged, but in the course of the story, they are um, brought together. Um, and then in the fall, my client, Margie Price, her fantasy novel, Windswept, comes out in September, and it's it's probably her best book ever. Um, she of course wrote Heart of a Samurai, which won the Newbery Honor book. Um, everything she does is really stunning. She did this book um, last year called The Littlest Voyageur, which is young middle grade about a red, um, red squirrel who travels with French Canadian explorers. Um, anyway, Windswept comes out this fall and it's a great book. Um, I, 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 it's probably gonna win awards. I mean, it's that good. Um, um, so those are two books of mine that are coming out. As you can tell, middle grade is something I feel strongly about. And I'm always looking for um, new middle grade authors, someone who has something uh, new to say. Um, you know, it's not just about um, having a great concept, although of course that's important. It's also having the wherewithal as a writer to tell that story. Um, I probably get about 20, about 50, 25 to 50 queries every day, people that I've never heard from. And you know, about 90% of them I am not interested in, but it's the 10% that I am, which makes it interesting. Um, but it's not just a concept. You've got to be able to use language beautifully. You've got to really be able to write a great sentence, a great paragraph. You've got to grab your readers. And so that's what I'm looking for always with middle grade writers, a good story, um, but also someone who can tell that story really well. Um, and, and that's actually fairly rare um, to be able to do that. And I should shamelessly point out that esteemed audience could be enjoying my conversation with Marky Price uh, in the back catalog uh, shortly after they, they finished this episode. Uh, that is a bold statement, her best book ever. Oh Ooh. my God, you know, I have to say, I'm so in love with all my my clients. Um, she's someone, she always surprises me. The very first book, now this is interesting. Um, the very first book she wrote, um, I had met with an editor, Howard Reeves at Abrams. We were having lunch. Sadly, that doesn't happen that much anymore. There aren't that many editor agent lunches, but we were at lunch. And just before we said goodbye, he said, you know, I like stories with exotic settings. Well, wouldn't you know the next week I get a manuscript and a query from an unknown to me writer named Margie, Margie Preuss. And she wrote this novel about feudal Japan. 
heart of a samurai, this little boy, it's based on a real story of this boy who is a, became a, a samurai warrior, um, but he was rescued by an American whaling ship and brought to America. It's an interesting story, but she did it so beautifully, but it won the Newbery Honors. So, but it came about just as a result of an editor saying, hey, I might be interested in this sometime. So she, but you know, everything she does is so delicious and so great. And she always surprises me. Um, as do all my other writers. I'm, I'm always delighted to see what's gonna come next from all my authors. Um, Claudia Mills, I mentioned her book, The Lost Language. For years, like 40 years, she did these um, chapter books very successfully writing really for second and third grade, third grade writers so beautifully. When she wrote The Last Language, it was a verse novel, which she had never done before, a standalone novel, not part of her series, but she blew me away. It was just spectacularly beautiful. And um, so, yeah, I I'm always surprised by, by writers. So with so many wonderful writers already being represented by you, how actively are you seeking new middle grade writers? You know, I would never say no. If I, if I find someone that I'm you know, who's writing I fall in love with, I, I would sign them up. Um, so I'm not, I don't need any more clients. I have about 40 or so clients, but I would never say no. I'm always looking for talent. And also, you know, picture book writers. I love a good picture book. YA, I'm pretty fussy with YA. I don't like really dark stories, dystopian. I think there's enough of that. I want teens to have something hopeful to hang on to. Um, they can be realistic, but I, but, um, I guess I would say as an agent, I am pretty fussy since I, I don't really need clients with picture books. They've really got to, the words have got to sing. They've got to really, and they've got to beg to be illustrated. They've got to be begged to be read aloud. Middle grade, it's got to be a story it's never been told before. And nonfiction, it's got to be something that hasn't been written about before in, in quite the same way. Um, but yeah, I, you've got to dazzle me. I'm, I'm a hard one to impress, but once I'm on board, I'm there. So uh, if, if uh, somebody's listening to us, they want to send you a query, they're going to send that and they're going to send the first 20 pages of their manuscript. Um, what are you looking at first? How, what's going to give us our best chance at, at dazzling you? Uh, a title always gets my attention. If it's an interesting title or an interesting concept, um, you know, I've read a lot of picture books about the monster under the bed. I mean, that's not a new story. Um, uh, the, a kid who lives in a boring town with a boring family. I've read that before. Um, but it's really the words that, you know, when I was my very first job in publishing, I was an editor at Highlights for Children, the children's magazine. And all the editors read 200 manuscripts every week, you know, just over the transom, unsolicited manuscripts. I got really good at, as did the other editors, I'm sure, of being able to tell within a sentence if there's a real writer there, someone I want to work with. So I can usually tell in a sentence, you at least the first paragraph, if there's someone who's a real writer that I want to work with. So in a query, I really, I spent about three seconds reading it. I just want to see the title, the concept, if they've been published before is interesting to me, not that it makes a difference, but if someone, if I know someone's been published, I kind of know where they are in their career and I know where I can kind of jump in and help. If someone's never been published before, that's okay too. Um, but I can usually tell right away if I wanna work with someone. Um, it's, and it, as I said, it's after 
40 years of reading queries and you know having a highly attuned uh, radar in terms of writing. So, okay, uh, well, two questions. What about that, that sentence, that paragraph is gonna give us away as a real writer? And then also, why well, ask for 20 pages? <laughs> if, if you're gonna have it at the end of the paragraph. Well, I mean, sometimes someone has a great idea and a great first sentence, sometimes even a verse, great first chapter, but it's kind of what comes next that really tells the, you know, the truth. Um, with a picture book, of course, you can send the whole, the whole manuscript, that's, that's fine. But, um, you know, it, sometimes people go to writers' conferences and they hone the first chapter beautifully and then you ask to see the manuscript and then it, it just doesn't hold up. They haven't workshopped the whole manuscript. You know, they need to work on the second chapter and the third chapter, the final chapter. Um, but I don't know, I can kind of tell. And even if something isn't perfect, I can tell if I want to work with someone. It doesn't have to be picture perfect. It doesn't have to be ready for a publisher. Because as a ed former editor, I know how to help you get there. Um, but I just need to see the promise and I, I need to see someone with a real gift for language, but I'm, I can, I'm pretty good at discerning that. Gotcha. So if the concept grabs you, the story sounds amazing, but the language is just kind of ho-hum, the writing is a little bit lackluster. Do you feel that with your many years of experience as an editor, you can help reshape that into something better? Or is that, is that not something you're interested in with a full stable of clients already? I'm glad to work with someone. But I have to say, you can't make someone a, someone who's a lackluster writer. I mean, I don't mean to be negative, but someone who just doesn't have the facility to tell a story really well. I don't know if you can teach that. I mean, I think you can improve as a writer. And I'm always glad like at a writer's conference to chat with writers, but I don't think you can do a paced up job and make someone a good writer I, I think if there's promise, I can help make a manuscript better, but I can't make someone a writer. That's something that has to come from the writer themselves. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, mean, that, I, mean, so uh... I mean, sadly, there are some people who are not gonna get published or they're gonna be published in a local newspaper and, and that's fine too. Or they're gonna publish, self-publish something for their family, that's okay. But to be a professional writer, you've got to have the ability to tell a story in a fresh way. You've got to be able to make an interesting concept really come alive. And really, you know, this is the thing I tell writers all the time. Think about your writer, think about your audience. Are you reaching them? You know, when you're writing a picture book, for instance, or a middle grade novel or a chapter book, picture the kids sitting around your feet, listening to you. When you read the story out loud, have you grabbed their attention? And then when you've grabbed their attention, are you holding on to their attention? That's really key. I, I find that a lot of writers, they kind of get into their heads and they forget about the audience. It's like being an actor. Um, I mean, my background is musical theater. So, you know, when you're standing up on stage, you have to think about the deaf person in the last row. You've got to think about the people in the front row. Have you grabbed their attention or have you lost them in the first sentence? As a writer, you've got to Think about your reader. And I think that's one of the key things people forget. Um, and I'm not saying you're pandering. You, want, you don't want to use cheap tricks to get your, get your reader's attention, but you do need to think about the reader. Um, you know, are you telling a story in an interesting way? 
is the pacing good to hold on to your reader? Maybe you need to have shorter chapters, or maybe you need to have, you know, more kind of cliffhanger enders, endings to your chapter. Anything you can do to, to really grab your reader, but that's really a key thing. And I think that some writers forget about that. They, they, they're in their heads, they're writing something beautiful, which is good, but you do have an audience and you, and you need to think about that. So how do you, you keep uh, abreast with what the audience is looking for? Do you go and, and find children to read to or to listen to stories to know that you're, you're connecting? You mean as a, what, for me as an agent or- for you as an agent or do you, is that something you would recommend that, that writers do? Yes, I mean, I think that having children or teens in your life is very important. I mean, I have two grandchildren um, and I love to read out loud to them. My own kids, I remember reading to them. Books were always around the house. Um, when I was growing up, there were always books. My dad particularly was a great reader. Um, I think that people who, well, both for agents and for writers and editors, I think there's a child inside of you. And I think if you're writing middle grade, there's a middle grade child inside that you are responding to. Someone who writes for teens, I think there's a teen in there that is responding. For picture books, there's a, there's a younger child that is inside of you. And I think you need to cherish and protect that childlikeness in you as a writer, as an editor, as an agent, because I think that's what gives you the ability to really write or to look for books for that audience. Um, I do think it's useful to maybe in a bookstore setting or a school setting to read to kids, kind of gauge you know, where their interest sags, where you get their attention, um, or family members. I, I do think it's good to have kids around you, um, but I think it's the inner child that's equally important. And I know that you, um, you've got a master's degree in children's literature from, from Simmons College in Boston. Yeah. Did you decide relatively early that children's literature is where you were going to gravitate toward? When did you decide? You know, it's probably my mentality, but child, childlike things kind of interest me. But yes, I knew right away children's books fascinated me. Um, I mean, I was a great reader myself. I mean, I think I had a British childhood. Um, Beatrix Potter, A.A. A. Milne, Francis Hosn Burnett, um, all these great British writers, uh, George MacDonald. Um, I did my master's thesis on George MacDonald's at the back of the North Wind, one of the great fantasy masterpieces. Um, so yeah, I knew children's books interested me. And my first job, as I told you earlier, was at Highlights for Children. Um, then I worked at um, um, the Weekly Reader Book Club, acquiring books for them. Then the Trumpet Book Club. Uh, I worked at Oxford University Press. I worked at Simon & Schuster, um, HarperCollins. So I've done a little bit of everything, um, but I've always been around children's books, uh, which is something that I absolutely love. So yes, it's kind of been a love affair for a long time. And I know that as an editor, you'd worked with folks such as previous guests, Gregory McGuire and Dan yeah. Dutton. Uh, check the back catalog of Steam Bodies. I will keep you listening all day. Um, <laughs> when did you uh, make the decision that um, you would be better serving either um, your desire to, for how you wanted to work or for the writers you serve as an agent rather than an editor? Interesting story. If you had, if we had an extra hour, I would tell you the entire story, but it would be off the record. <laughs> <laughs> I was working at HarperCollins and um, 
you know, Harper is, a, it used to, HarperCollins used to be the place you would go to train as an editor with Ursula Nordstrom, the great Ursula Nordstrom. Um, and um, so I wanted to get myself there. And there were a lot of great editors. I have to say, like Simon & Schuster, HarperCollins is a very commercial house. Um, there are great editors there. They do fabulous books. The backlist is amazing. But um, I found increasingly a difficult place for creative people. It's very bottom line oriented. And I found myself on the way to work thinking, you know, why isn't this fun? Why is this so difficult? And um, I don't wanna say anything disparaging, but um, some people that I worked with were difficult. And um, so actually I resigned. Um, and I thought, you know, I have a lot of experience. People know me, I've done a lot of great books. I'll just get another job. I was executive editor at HarperCollins. And well, wouldn't you know it at that time, there were no edit, uh, executive editor jobs to be found. In fact, when I left Harper, they then let go all the executive editors. So that entire level disappeared. Um, interestingly, at that very same time, an agent that I knew, Jennifer DeChiara, who had started her own agency several years prior, I was her first um, children's book editor uh, I, to, um, to sell her a book uh, or to, for me to buy a, a book from one of her clients. It was The Geography Club by Brent Hartinger, fabulous landmark YA novel. Um, anyway, she said to me, hey, Steve, you wanna come work for me? I had never thought about being an agent. But you know, as I thought about it, I'd been an editor for 25 years. I'd done children's magazines, book clubs, paperback books, hardcover books. I knew all the editors. I knew all the houses. So I thought, you know, I think I could do this. So, and I, the first year I had already signed up books. Um, and uh, so 17 up, going on 18 years later, I, I think this is a great place for me because I, while I miss the authors that I used, used to work with, Gregory McGuire, um, Brent Hartinger, all these great people, uh, Michael Haig, Mary Engelbright, um, Dan Gutman, I did the, um, my, my Weird School series. Um, I actually get to meet the writers before editors do, discover them really, and then bring them to publishers. So that's kind of fun. And um, yeah, I love it. Well, knowing that you have such editorial expertise, does that allow the editors who receive your submissions to go, oh, well, we'll still have to do maybe a little bit of editing, but this is this is one of Stephen's people. It's probably going to be fine. I hope so. I mean, my goal is for people to think, oh, yes, Steve has good taste. He knows what he's doing. He can help guide the authors. Uh, yeah, so that, that's kind of my hope. Um, you never know. Um, you know, I, I have to say it's a, it's, the last couple of years, not just because of COVID, but partly because of COVID, it's, it's been a difficult time in publishing. And um, I mean, publishers are still doing great books and there are great books coming out, but I think things have slowed down. It takes longer to get a contract. It gets longer to get checks from my authors. Um, there's more competition. I think publishers the last couple of years have been publishing fewer books, but hopefully better books. So it's competitive. Um, 
it's a difficult time. Uh, I mean, it, it's great fun. And, uh, but it, the last couple of years have been challenging for me and for other agents, I'm sure. So here's a question I've been uh, asking as, as many publishing professionals as I have the opportunity to. Um, how do you see the current state of, of publishing? And if I gave you a magic wand and said, cast one spell that's going to fix it, what, what would you do? Uh, <laughs> well, let's see. Um, I think the current state of publishing, as I said, I think middle grade is always going to be a strong area for publishing and for middle grade authors. I think picture books, um, I think a couple of years ago, picture biographies really came into their own. I think there's been a bit of a glut, um, but picture books, you know, there's so many, essentially there are 5,000 new children's books published every year across every format. There are a lot of picture books, so it's very competitive. Um, the name of the game at the moment for picture books is cultural diversity. Um, uh, which is great. Um, every community really needs a voice. I just signed up a Muslim American writer. Um, I have a couple of Latino writers. I have, I have gay writers that I represent, African American. Um, it's really, a, it's the heyday of any kind of diversity, which is great. I mean, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. I, I do think that children's book publishing even 40 years ago was really doing its best to represent a multicultural world. And I remember Margaret McElderry, one of the great editors um, at, um, she had her own imprint at Simon & Schuster, but prior to that, she was at Harcourt Grayson World. Um, and she always, she, after World War II, she brought, she was one of the first editors to bring talent from Europe to the US. She was always doing books from a very diverse palette. Um, but of recent in publishing in general, adult and children's has become much more um, prevalent, um, which is great. Um, so uh, um, I would say, as, and again, as I said earlier, I think YA is very competitive. I think that social media plays a large part with teen novels. Um, I think that for a teen writer, you've got to stay in the public eye. You've, you should have a book every year if possible, to, you know, to keep your name out there. Um, and it's very competitive. One of the challenges I'm having individually as, as an agent is that for, for clients who have been publishing for 30, 40 years, publishing your next book is not necessarily a shoe-in. Publishers are looking at your track record. How did your last book, how did your last two books sell? If they didn't sell well, they may not want your next book. So whereas 40 years ago, you were, as a writer, you worked with one editor for your entire career, with one house for your entire career. That's not necessarily true anymore. Um, partly it's economics. I think writers are with several houses just because if a publisher publishes one book of yours and you've written two or three books, you need to have several publishers to accommodate that. Um, but it's also challenging because you are you may not have a house that's behind you 100% always. Um, so that's challenging. Um, gosh, with a magic wand, I don't know how I would change things. Um, I guess this whole COVID thing with people 
not necessarily going to bookstores, to public events. I guess I would wish that away so that there were book school and school visit events that were happening more regularly. The, I would wish people to be in public more so they could meet with authors. Um, I think I would wish for schools and libraries to have bigger budgets. Um, I mean, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, the school and library market was essentially where children's books were sold. Um, that has changed now. School and library markets are much smaller. Um, a lot of books are sold online. Um, books, you know, trade, trade booksellers, of course, partly. Um, but, but it is an exciting time. There are great writers out there. There are great books being published. And I, I think there's a lot to celebrate. Um, so even though it sounds a bit doomsday, there's still great things. It's a, it, the children's book world is a great world. It's a great place to be. I know there's always a, it seems like there's always some kind of doomsday talk in publishing. Yeah. <laughs> so no matter when you go back in the history of publishing, there was always the, the thing that was going to, uh, the, to put publishing under this time for sure. Yeah. Yes. Oh, oh yeah. It's all, it's kind of like theater. It's always the invalid, you know, the, the famous invalid, but yeah, publishing is not dying. Physical books are not going away. Um, you know, a couple of years ago when suddenly that was the issue, would books go away with, books being read on iPads or whatever. Um, electronics have enhanced the book reading and book selling world, but they have not done away with physical books, particularly for children. You know, for a child to hold a book in their hand, that is a seminal experience for a child and for an adult too, to hold a book, turn the pages. That's an important part of the human experience and that's never gonna go away. So that's good to remember. Uh, let's see. And we had talked a little bit about uh, diversity in publishing and in, in your efforts to increase diversity in publishing. But I do try to ask everyone who, who works in publishing, who's good enough to come on the show, um, because we've had a, a much needed movement for we need diverse books. What are you seeing publishers do to increase that diversity? And what is the uh, Jennifer? Oh, I promise not to do it. The Jennifer DeChera? De De Chiara. Zakara agency, what, uh, what, are, what are they doing to increase uh, diversity outside of your efforts and who you're representing? Yeah. I mean, all our agents are always looking for books that represent a diverse population. So we're all on board with that. Um, I think editors are looking for books about all different cultures um, and, and um, consciously looking for books. It used to be you would just wait till something came in. Now I think publishers are really actively seeking books about Muslim culture, about Asian American culture. Um, in fact, I've had an editor, I had this great nonfiction book about that took place in Paris at the turn of the century. And the editor said, you know, Steve, we're, we're not doing so many European culture books. We're looking for more diverse stories. So that kind of shows you editors are deliberately looking for to expand their repertoire of stories, not just, um, you know, Western European driven culture, but world cultures, which is great. Um, you know, there's a slight negative side to this, and I hesitate to say it, but it actually is a truth. I think that the own voices movement, which is what this is called, which is great, 
people writing about their own cultural experience. I do think it's it's gotten a bit heavy handed. And I think there's some editors who have gone maybe too far in that direction. I, you know, it's called creative writing for a reason. And I think any writer who is gifted enough should be able to write about any anything, their own culture or someone else's culture, as long as they do research and do it and write really well, you should be able to write any story. But I think some editors will not look at stories that are not authentic, quote unquote, in their mind. And I think that's, I think that's becoming a bit of a problem. Um, you know, there are people who are really good writers who aren't getting published simply because they're white writers or they're, you know, um, they're, you know, not of the culture that they would like to write. And um, so all I would say is I, I think things will calm down. Um, I think that, um, as I said, any writer who's gifted should be able to write any story. I'm sure there are people who, who, who will differ with me, but I think it's all about being authentic, doing good research. I mean, certainly you can't, it's not 50 years ago when you could write something and it could pass for an authentic story. You really gotta know what you're writing about. And I understand that, but I do think writers need to have the freedom to be creative. Um, and there's also, and again, I, I hesitate to say it, but again, I think it maybe needs to be said. I think there are some people who are kind of self-installed vigilantes, people who are out of the starting gate, they're, and I'm talking about editors, and, and it's a minority, but they're people who are out to accuse everyone of being racist um, without, for instance, we had this author who wrote this book, a picture book, and it was about a child dealing with grief. Well, the someone on social media who, there's some people who are called big mouth people. They, they're great at, they're influencers. They're people that are great getting word out who heard about this book, heard about the title and said, oh, well, that's racist. This book should never be published. Well, the book was two weeks from being published. And so we all panicked because you can kill a book just by you know spreading word that you shouldn't this book should not be out there the publisher um very wisely said let's not panic let's stay calm let's send this person a couple a copy of the book she'll read it and she can decide for herself so we sent her the copy of the book she read it and she said oh yes this is great this is not racist but you know what don't be that person who's out to accuse someone without having read the book this is a story about a child dealing with grief. And one of the characters, um, well, I, I, you know, I don't want to go in specific because I don't want to get anyone in trouble, but don't be that person who's out to accuse someone. And I think there are people who are, who are out, that, out there trying to police the world, but in an overly um, heated way. Um, accusing everybody, and we don't need that. We all need to be respectful and inclusive, um, and we're all doing our best. So anyway, I think things will calm down, but I do think it, the climate is a bit volatile at the moment. Part of me uh, is, is a little bit sympathetic because if, if we were to have an overcorrection for a time, like, well, we went way too far in the other direction for years, for decades. So, okay, let's overcorrect the other way. Fine. If sooner or yes. later, we'll get back to a happy middle. <laughs> yes, absolutely. 
Uh, and then uh, while I'm thinking about it, let's make sure uh, the Jennifer Dechara agency, what I always want to ask people of all those agencies that, that are out there for writers uh, to join, why would the Jennifer Dechara uh, agency be the, be the one that they should be considering? Well, I mean, I think if you look at our website, we have a huge range of books. We do everything from, um, you know, great children's, award-winning children's books, award-winning YA novels. We do celebrity memoirs. Um, we do cookbooks. We do um, horror. We do graphic novels. We do a little bit of everything. But, you know, we've been around for 21 years, um, which is quite um, a track record. We've got nine agents together. Um, so we're, we are a in, interesting, diverse group. Um, and I, I think our track record um, speaks for itself. Fair enough. I like the confidence. <laughs> <laughs> so the esteemed audience is hearing that and they know that they're going to be represented uh, with confidence uh, by, by the, by one of the best agents for one of the best agencies. You're going to be in, in good hands. So yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, I think, you know, one, one thing that maybe distinguishes us, you know, we're looking, I met an agent years ago who worked with people on a book by book basis. And then she, you know, that's it. I'm looking and I think I'm speaking for all our agents. At our agency, we're looking for people whose careers we can guide. So not just to sell one book, but your next book and the next book and to help you decide, well, what is the next book gonna be? Um, I remember when we were chatting with Brent Hartinger, we really said, okay, now what's your next book? Geography Club was a great book about a group of great teens, gay teens starting a gay straight alliance that had never been done before in a YA novel. But for the next book, I was afraid he would be ghettoized as a quote unquote gay writer. So we said, well, what, what can we do different the next book? So the next four books, we actually mapped out for him. And I think that was a good career plan to really think in terms of broadening his audience. And, uh, but that's what we do. We really do think in terms of career. And I think maybe that's unique or um, I think it's unique. Well, that begs the question if, uh, assuming that, because uh, everyone who listens to this show, these are the smartest, savviest writers in the world, because they're, they're listening to us, they, they know <laughs> what's going on. And so yeah. they're going to write you a tremendous query, you're going to read their, not only the first paragraph, but you're going to keep going through all 20 pages, request the full, so yeah. that's going to go great. At what point do you start evaluating the author? What are you looking at about the author? And how do you determine whether or not this is somebody you're going to want to represent beyond just this book for a career? Yeah, I, I have to say, because I have been at this for a long time, it's really instinct. I can usually tell right away if there's someone I'm excited about who's writing that I really love. Um, and usually by the time I've requested the full, I, um, I pretty much know, I think this is someone that I wanna work with. However, I always ask, what's your next project? With a picture book, I need to read at least one other picture book that I like equally as well as the first one. Um, with a novel, I need to know there's at least another idea in the works. Cause I, as I said, I wanna work with someone in their career. And if, there's, if, it, if it's a one book thing, I'm really not interested because I, I really, when you're putting that much time and thought and passion into some, someone's career, you wanna make sure there really is a career there. So I, I need to know there are other projects in the pipeline. And that's the kind of thing you would discover during your initial uh, phone call with the author then? Yeah, so I would be in touch with them probably initially by email and say, what else are you working on? 
Um, how do you see yourself? Are you a YA author primarily? Do you do only picture books? Do you do middle grade? What else are you working on? Have you been published before? I kind of like to get a sense of who someone is as a writer. And you can usually tell right away. Um, it's kind of like when you go shopping and you know, you know when you see something, it's the perfect gift for someone. You just know and you don't hesitate. It's, it, that's kind of the feeling you have as an agent. And so if they come back and it's something right out of left field, well, I've got this wonderful middle grade book you've fallen in love with. And right now I'm polishing off an erotic thriller. Is that, is that something that uh, gives you pause? I know you said elsewhere that if your client decides to write something else that is not usually within your wheelhouse, that you will find a way to represent that book also because you believe in the client, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure erotic is really what I do best. Um, but yes, I pretty much, once I'm signed on with an author, I will do whatever they want. And if I don't, for instance, I, I had um, one author who wrote a, what you consider chick lick. I don't, I didn't really know um, that, um, that audience, those editors, but I educated myself and I found out who those editors are. So yes, I will, I'm with someone once I'm signed on to them. And in fact, I think it's good for writers to flex all their muscles as writers. If you do picture books, you wanna try YA, or vice versa, I think that's great. If you wanna do an adult novel, it's good. Um, I think it's good for a writer to do all kinds of things. Some people only wanna do one thing and that's okay too, but um, I do try to encourage my writers to try all kinds of things. And so for writers uh, working with you and you, you're out there submitting the first book and they're working on another one. How often do you want to hear from the writer? How involved do you want to be in choosing what their next projects are, are going to be? Um, I'm glad to be a sounding board for writers if they want to discuss a couple ideas they have, you know, what should be the next one. Um, yeah, I, I mean, writers can, can send something to me as, as, you know, as frequently or as um, fully as they'd like. Um, Generally, I say be in touch with me about every six weeks or so. Because I have about 40 clients, I, I, I'm not in touch with everyone all the time. Some writers take a lot of time, like if they're selling books consistently, I need to obviously take care of their contracts, their deal negotiations, um, or you know, chasing down checks or contracts, whatever. Um, but I would say about every six weeks, I need to, I, I'd like to hear from people. Gotcha. So you know we don't want me calling you uh, every other day to tell you what the update is on the, <laughs> the new book. You know, I really don't mind, but I would say every six weeks is a good deadline. Now it really varies. I mean, some writers do need a lot of handholding, and that's okay. Um, one of my clients, Marky Price, is a good example of someone who she's totally independent. I will. I called her one time and I said, "So uh, we have a deadline coming up for your next book. How are you coming?" And she said, "Oh, I'm going skiing," <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. Because I knew she would get it done, but I like the fact that she has a life. She's got other things going on. Um, she did meet the deadline. Um, it was, you know, the, the book came out beautifully. Um, but some people, every week, they need to be in touch via email or every month with a phone call. And that's okay. Because um, every writer is different and I want to, you know, take care of their own individual needs as a writer. And then, uh, so if I've got an idea, but I'm not sure, certain of it, when you be a soundboard, we can go back and forth. Do you want to see early revisions or would you prefer that I get half a manuscript, a full manuscript before you offer input? 
how? No, it could be just an idea. You could say, hey, listen, I've got this idea for a book. This character meets this character. This is the setting. This is the time frame. What do you think? And I could say, well, you know, it's kind of similar to what you did before. How about something a little bit different? Or I'm seeing a lot of that kind of thing. Do you have any other ideas? Um, I'm glad to see a partial. If you want to wait and polish it, show it to your critique group, then send it to me. At any stage, whatever you find useful, I'm glad to come on board. Um, I'm pretty open to that. Uh, and then um, I've got uh, so many questions. I'm, I'm watching our time, so I'm trying to select what are the uh, most crucial questions to make sure that I ask. Uh, one thing I've, I've heard you say uh, is that a book is joy manifest, which is a description I absolutely love. Um, do you still feel this way? Uh, years of, of, of being in the agency and how many books have come across your desk and out that, that each book is joy manifest? You know, that's interesting. I don't remember saying that, but yeah, I do think that's kind of true. It's interesting. I do believe that the painter uh, Renoir said that a painting is love made manifest. And if you if you look at Renoir's paintings, there is a very tender, sweet quality to, to his to his paintings. And so I do think that's true. Yes, I do think that's true. I think that I do remember saying once in a speech that joy is the soil in which books are born. It's like planting a seed. Um, I think joy is part of it. It's part of the creative act. I think that when you have an idea for a book, it's a very exciting, joyful thing. And I think that joy is what helps you finish the book, you know, page by page by page. I think joy about that book ideas is what helps an agent then sell it to an editor. I do think it's a very joyful thing. Maybe that sounds simplistic, but I do actually think that's true. I think joy is a part of it. I think when it becomes humdrum, when it becomes just work, I think that is a bad thing. I think then maybe it's time to do something else. But yes, I do think it's a thing of joy. Um, I do feel that way. And it sounds hokey, but you know what? Every morning when I wake up, I do have this joyful feeling is I can't wait to sell these books. I can't wait to call an author and say, we have a deal on the table or we have an auction going for your book. It is a very joyful thing. I do think that's true. Just hearing you you talk about it, I can see that that's true, that all these years later, you're you're still thrilled to be out there and finding the best deal and the defined uh, way to to unite your, your, your authors with readers. Yeah, I mean, I get it sounds hokey, but I do think about children every day, getting books in the hands of children. What a wonderful thing to help someone create books for children. What a wonderful thing. So yeah, it, it does make me happy. And I know that um, I, I don't want I don't want you to give away your, your secret sauce, um, <laughs> but uh, I'm always curious about how you're staying up on market trends, how you're staying up on different types of editors, what house is going to want what type of book, how, as much as you can tell us, how do you keep uh, uh, on top of those things? Um, you know, I always tell people that being an agent is like being a GPS system for a writer. I have to zero in, not just on the house, but on the indiv individual editor who will like a book. Um, you know, I get partly it's from experience, having been around so long, I know the houses, I know the editors, and I've met new editors of the, as they come along. Partly it's from experience of day to day. I may find out today, for instance, that um, editors are now looking for, I don't know, um, 
dystopian novels or, or books that are post-COVID or, you know, I, you just hear things on a daily basis from editors and from writers who will share things they've heard from editors. So it's an ongoing thing. So it's learned experience of, you know, the 40 years, it's daily experience of being in touch with editors every single day. Um, I go at least once a week, usually twice a week to bookstores to see what books are coming out, to listen to books, booksellers, um, listen to people who are buying books. So I, literally I'm out there every, every single week. Um, so I think immersing yourself in the world is key, both as an agent by working online and on the phone and then um, being in bookstores, um, for instance, I live in New York, so I go to the Strand, which is a great three-story used bookstore. I go there every week and wander around. Um, there's a great little book, independent bookstore called Three Lives, which I adore. I go there usually every week. I go to Barnes and Noble in Union Square every Saturday. So I, I do make books part of my um, daily life. So I, I think that's important. Um, but, but you learn a lot just by doing, and um, you hear things, as an agent, I, I, you know, I hear things um, about trends or what people are looking for. So if you're an active part of the world, you, you learn these things. But many times a week, I wonder when you come in, is it like when you come in and cheers and they yell, Steve, you're here. Uh, <laughs> no, but you know something terrible. Don't tell anyone this. But when I go to bookstores, I pace my, I, I put my client's book face out so that you can see. <laughs> I, I think it's probably illegal to do that, but I want everyone to buy my client's book. So if you see a jump in sales in the New York area, you, it, I may be part of that. I don't know. <laughs> I think there was a, a story out in a couple of years back that uh, somebody tried to kick Stephen King out of a bookstore because they caught him signing his own books. Huh? <laughs> and they realized who he was like, oh, no, you're fine. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I guess I, that's I, something he likes to do. We just stop off into a bookstore and sign a couple of his books and then be on his way. You know, it's a great temptation when you see someone standing in a bookstore trying to decide what to what to buy. It's a great temptation to say, you know, you might like this book. Um, you know, you don't want to scare people, making them think you're just some odd person who's, you know, hawking books. But I do feel very strongly about my clients' books, and uh, I, you know, I'll do anything to help sell them. <laughs> What is it when you go into a bookstore? What is it that you're learning there that, that is different from what you might be able to learn through the countless other ways of, of getting data online or, or otherwise? You know, um, people don't know this, but for instance, in the big chains like Barnes and Noble, um, it's all paid for. You know, the picture books are on the picture book wall. There's a power aisle on the first floor, the books you see when you, those are all paid for. People don't know that. So it's all negotiated ahead of time. What books are gonna be out front? What books are gonna be up on the wall for um, book, book buyers? So it's not, it doesn't, it's not just random. In a independent bookstore, it may be different, um, but, it, but I don't think people know that it's a very deliberately curated thing to walk into a chain bookstore. Um, um, and you see, I don't know, I guess you, you see what books people are drawn to. Um, uh, you see the diversity of books. I mean, I'm always looking for my picture books. And you know, there are so many picture books published. Sometimes I can't even find my books on the shelf. You have to, you have to look really carefully. Um, you know, it, as an agent, your client's books are foremost in the front of your mind. But when you go to a bookstore, they, you know, they're looking, they're, you know, they're pushing books by 
represented by all different agents, by published by all different authors. So you realize that in your mind, you are egocentric. When you get out there in the world, there's a, there's a lot of competition. So that's, I guess competition is what you see. Here's a question I can't reasonably expect an answer to, but if you're putting your client's books face out or other agents, uh, rivals, or books, maybe you're putting face back to the back of the show. You know, I'm not going to answer that because I might get in trouble. <laughs> I think that's probably wise. <laughs> you know, you know there's there a lot of agents that I know that who I admire tremendously and whose books I would never do anything to cover them up. But um, let's just say on a certain day, there, there are certain clients of mine who get preferential treatment. Well, I know that obviously, I mean, it's, it's, it's a competitive business, um, yeah. but when you're talking to other writers who you don't represent, you're talking to other agents, isn't there, is there still a sense that, Hey, even though we're competing a little bit, we're still book people of all the things that there are, are options for us to do in this world. We're here trying to create stories for readers. Is there still um, some sort of uh, camaraderie that this yeah, this, yes there's definitely a collegial feeling like when I do a writer's conference I'll be in a panel with John Cusack the you know the agent and um, any number of other people yes and, and I think we all get along we all respect each other and um, yes I, I think I can't speak for the book world as a whole but the, in the children's and teen book world people are very friendly and very supportive Interestingly, though, we don't really get together socially. Um, I mean, I, I'm sure there's some agents who get together for dinner or drinks or lunch or whatever. I pretty much am working from seven in the morning to 11 at night, and I don't really have a lot of time for that. So um, we see each other, we say hello, we're friendly, but there isn't a lot of mingling. So there's that kind of competitive thing. We're just so busy competing against each other, doing our own jobs that we don't spend a lot of time. But I would say there, there's a good collegial feeling. Well, theoretically, if you're going to go out and have lunch, you would probably be better served to be meeting with editors, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I have to say that whole social thing has, I wouldn't say it's evaporated, but people are just starting to get back to their offices to be meeting in person. So I, that really hasn't happened for a couple of years. Um, uh, but I'm in touch with editors literally every day, all day long. So, so th there is that connection. My esteemed audience uh, knows I have to ask and they think I'm going to chicken out because we've had such a, a nice robust conversation ah. thus far, but I'm not gonna. I okay. ask everybody who comes on the show, Stephen Frazier, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? Oh, that's an interesting question. No one has asked me that before. Um, no, I would like to see a flying saucer because I, you know, I think there definitely is intelligent life throughout the universe. I think it would be egotistical to think there isn't. Um, a ghost, I don't believe in ghosts, but I love ghost stories. And I think that for any imaginative person, we should keep our minds open to anything and everything. How's that for an answer? Oh, 100% agree. It's a perfect answer. <laughs> uh, and um, my final question for you, but this has been an absolute pleasure. I so appreciate you making time and, oh. uh, and, and for being such a wonderful guest on the show. My pleasure. Uh, my, my final question for, for this time around is if 
there was one or two bits of advice, however much advice you like, that, that you would want to impart to every writer who is watching or listening to us right now that's going to make easier their path to getting, if not to you, to some agent that's going to represent them and then make their career better? What, what advice would you impart? Um, well, first of all, I would say be authentic. You know, don't try to follow a trend. Um, write really what's in your heart. Have fun doing it. Is it, like we discussed earlier, it's a thing of joy. So keep it joyful, keep it fun. Um, and another thing which I said earlier is remember your audience. I do find that's a thing that a lot of writers forget about. You know, people particularly who come from um, academic settings particularly, they think that writing for an audience is somehow a lesser thing, that it cheapens your writing, that it literally, being a literary person is high-minded and it is, but you need to have a reader. So the, the most important thing I think is keep an eye on your reader. Are, have you, are you reaching them? Are they listening? Have you kept their attention? So that's gonna affect how you write, the pacing, the characters, the sound of your words. Um, for me, language is the most important thing of all. You know, if you can, have someone read something you've written out loud and listen to it yourself. Do an ear check. What does it sound like to you? Or, you know, read it yourself. Um, but language is really important. And, you know, using language beautifully is one of the great things of human experience. So focus on the words, focus on the reader and your authentic voice. That's my advice. Where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? Yes, absolutely. Yes. So um, I don't know whether you will post my email address, but they can look for our agency. It's jdlit.com. My email address is Fraser Stephen with a PH, middle initial A at gmail.com. So you can always email me. And I'm glad to hear from anybody. This has been such a pleasure um, chatting with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, you you're more than welcome. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you with us. You, you put your email address out there boldly. You're not worried. Uh, I know some agents are very, very hesitant to do that. You're not worried about people just saying, hi, it's me. I'm working on a book. I don't have anything for you right now, but I, I hope to bother you in a year when it's done. That's you're fine. not worried about the spam and all that. Yeah. No, that's, that's fine. Let's keep the dialogue going. Um, and as always, esteemed audience, for more interviews, including uh, Margie Royce, uh, your fellow agent, Marie Lamba, John Cusick, we mentioned, Dan Gutman, Gregor, we're all the best people. Uh, head to middlegradeninja.com, and God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Thank you.